Well, good morning, and will you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we've been away from Matthew's Gospel for a couple of weeks now, building up toward Christmas and the Advent and all that that uh, brings with it, but really we stayed on the same theme kind of as we went through. It, it all deals with the anticipation of the coming of the King. Uh, a few weeks before Christmas, we opened up Matthew 21, where it starts with that triumphal entry, that approach of the King, Jesus Christ, into his city. And then we saw the anticipation that was there, not only in the crowds, but with everything that they said and all that that reflected back from the prophets and the Psalms and just the heaviness of anticipation that was there at that time and in that place. And then as we came near Christmas, we talked about what it meant to continue to live in anticipation, to understand that the King is coming and that because he's been faithful to all of his promises in the past, we know that God will continue to be faithful to every promise that he made. And that means that the king will come again, not in humility like he did the first time, but in power and honor and glory and justice and righteousness and restoration the second time that he comes. And then last week, uh, we put some feet to that, really uh, in a good way, I think, to start the new year by focusing on our church's mission statement and how it is that we as a body have chosen to pursue living in anticipation. Uh, what does it look like for us to live in light of the King's coming and His return? And basically, we could boil it all down to uh, an urgent presentation of the gospel and lives that are characterized by holiness and obedience. And if we can only get those things, then... What a remarkable place this would be. So we continue to move toward those things as we grow in our maturity. And this week, we're coming back into Matthew's gospel. And that anticipation hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, this week, we come with the king into the house of the king. We walk with Jesus into the temple, and we're going to see how this situation, this little scenario uh, that we're very familiar with, is not just about Jesus being angry at what some people are doing there, but that this portion of Matthew's gospel is absolutely saturated with prophetic expectation and with signs that point directly to who Jesus Christ is. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, and that's our text today. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, this is what God's word says. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing, nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we're not a people who move toward a particular temple as the site of our worship. But Lord, we approach the same holy God in the way that he's called us to. Or at least we aim to. Lord, on our own, our hearts want to find a way back to you, and so often we define what that looks like and what's acceptable worship, but Lord, you've told us what's acceptable. Not just the things, but how we bring those things. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people characterized by right worship. God, I pray that as we study your word, again, it's not just an intellectual exercise, it's not just something that we do so that we can know more. God, I pray that this is a transforming thing. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our sin-blinded eyes, so that we can understand and behold wonderful things from your word. Because your word is wonderful. It's a light, it's a lamp, it's a guide, it's a guard. So Lord, we ask for your help today as we study your word, that it would not only be clear to us, but that we would rightly apply it to our lives. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are certain places in the world where an atmosphere is just kind of brought along with the experience. Uh, you go to Dodger Stadium during playoff times, and you stand there in the middle of a game, and cheering and shouting is not only uh, allowed, it is expected, it is anticipated. 
if you were uh, about a month ago to have gone shopping on any given Friday or Saturday and you were to go to the mall up at the Oaks or if you were to go to the outlets, uh, you would expect and anticipate a crush of people. You would expect and anticipate the kind of a buzz and certain decorations and certain music in the background and uh, all of those people wouldn't even necessarily be a bother because of the atmosphere that's there. It would be expected and anticipated. If you go to someplace like downtown New York City, one of the busiest cities in the world, you expect taxis and honking and uh, the occasional or not so occasional swear word let out and just this kind of bustle of people. But if you go to Manhattan and lower Manhattan and you go to the place where there are two huge empty square foundations where the Twin Towers once stood, the atmosphere changes very quickly. And in the middle of one of the busiest cities of the world, there's a place where a let's go Yankees chat would be absolutely inappropriate, as if it was ever appropriate to root for the Yankees. But in that time and in that place, it is simply not okay. Because that place is given from memory. It's set aside for reflection. It's a somber place. And there are no signs that call for that. You simply go and you understand that by virtue of what it is and why it's there, the atmosphere changes. Well, today we come with Jesus Christ into the temple, into the Father's house, by virtue of who Christ is, into his house. And what we see that's happening does not match up to what we expect and anticipate the temple and its surroundings to be like. We're going to see that although there are all the preparations there for worship, so what's actually happening is a worship that is flat out rejected by the Son. So we're going to open our passage and we're first going to look at that rejected worship. That rejected worship that Jesus drives out. And in order to understand what he did, uh, first of all we have to understand something about the significance of that place. Uh, what is the temple? What does it look like? And why does it matter? We have to understand that a little bit. Because the temple, it's a foreign concept to us. Uh, maybe, maybe the closest we could get as Americans is somewhere in Washington, D.C. that kind of defines us as a people and as a culture, although even then, not really, because the temple was the place that was kind of the definition of who the Jewish people were. It was the center not only of their religion, but of who they were as an identity, as a people, as a unified nation. And if we were to go back to Exodus, when God calls the people out of Egypt, when he sets them aside, when he says in Exodus 19, you're going to be my treasured possession out of all the nations, he says something remarkable. God says, I am going to dwell with you. But if you know anything about God and you know anything about the Israelites, you know that that's a problem because God is holy and the people are not. And if God were to dwell among a sinful people, his justice, his perfection, his holiness would demand that their sins be dealt with and in the moment they would be consumed. So how does a holy God live with an unholy sinful people? Well, the answer is really in the law, in all those sacrifices that we think are bloody and out of place and kind of distasteful. That was God's gracious means of allowing a sinful people to live with him. Because a holy God is the one who determines what his worship looks like. God, the one who formed and filled all of creation, gets to determine how you approach him, when you approach him, if you are able to approach him. And God said, this is how you as a people will have me living in the midst of you. And he gave them the sacrifices. He said, you will approach me with these sacrifices that will cover your sins. He says, this is the priesthood. Not just anybody could bring those sacrifices. They had to be brought in the right way at the right time through the right mediators, the right priests. But more than that, he said, this is the place where that's going to happen. You didn't get to approach God wherever you want, however you want, through whatever you want. You approached God at his timing, in his way, and in his place. And at first, that was the tabernacle that traveled around the wilderness with the people when they moved into the land. The tabernacle found a home, and eventually, we know that Solomon would build the temple, the place where sacrifice and worship and the very presence of the God of the universe dwelt among his people. And so the temple is more than just a church. We have churches on every corner. The temple was absolutely central to the understanding that God dwelt among his people. And if we miss that, then nothing that Jesus does today really makes much sense to us. 
And the temple, if you want a kind of visual representation of what it looked like, looked something like that. That large building in the middle was kind of the temple proper. That's where the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies was. But it's not just a building. It's this whole kind of surrounding complex of courtyards and gates and walls and porticos and, and uh, entries and exits. And it's this complex. But in order to see kind of what that looks like, the next slide's a top-down view that gives some definition to some of those things. Because if you were to think of the temple, and you would think of the very center of it, the holy of holies, the place where God dwelt, you might think of some kind of concentric circles of access out from there. And if you were to look at that slide, the very widest part there, outside there, would be the court of the Gentiles. See, Israel was placed as a light among the nations. They were a people with unique and privileged access to the God of all creation. And they were set as a light to those Gentile nations. So their outer court there was designed so that the nations could come and view what worship of Yahweh looked like. You could come and you could see the sacrifices of Israel. You could hear the people pray. You could see the system happening. The idea was that you would come and you would understand what it meant to live in covenant fellowship with this God and be drawn to worship Him yourself. But if you were a Gentile, you could come that far and no further. Beyond that, you'll see there's another courtyard called the Court of Women. And this is where Israelites could go. The Jewish people, men, women, could go through there. That's where they would collect their tithes and offerings. It was access beyond what the Gentiles had, but if you were a woman, you could go that far and no further. Beyond that, there's a smaller court, the Court of Israel, the Court of the Men of Israel. And if you were a Jewish male, didn't matter what tribe you were from, you could go that far. You could bring your offerings very nearly up to the very border of where the altar was. But you couldn't get there. You could go that far and no further. Unless you were a Levite, because then you had the court of the priests. And if you were a priest, you had your duties in there. You would actually take the offerings, the sacrifices, and you would prepare them. You would lay them on the altar. You would do the ceremonial washings and the labor there. But if you were a priest, you could go that far and no further. Into that inner building, the temple proper, into the holy place, you could only go if you were a Levite, if you were a priest with specific duties. And it's in that holy place, that outer room of the temple proper, where you would have the golden lampstand, where you would have that table with the 12 loaves that symbolize the tribes of Israel. And if you were a priest, you went in there and you did your duties and you left there's no chairs, there's no loitering, there's no fellowship hall within the temple. You did your business that Yahweh had called you to do, and you left. And into that very inner room, that holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled before the deportation to Babylon, the place where the very presence of God dwelt among his people, only one man went and only one time a year. Only the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement. And he did not go without the right blood from the right sacrifice for the people. And so the temple sits in the middle of the people of God, in the middle of their land where they dwell, as this wonderful, beautiful reminder that God dwells among his people. That God in his grace and in his mercy has made a way to be among people that have no right to be close to him. And at the very same time, the temple showed you how very separate you were. Based on who you were, you could come so far, but no further. It was a reminder, a constant reminder of the fact that God is holy and that you are not. That although he's made a way to be in fellowship with him, to be in relationship with him, you simply were not fit to be in his presence. We have to start there because we have to understand the place of the temple so that we can understand the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple, it's there for worship. It's there for reverence. It's there to display what fellowship with God ought to look like, which is why we see Jesus do what he does when we come to Matthew 22 and ver 21 and verse 12. Jesus entered the temple. So he doesn't enter the holy place. He doesn't enter the holy of holies. He enters this temple grounds. And he drove out all who sold and all who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. They were buying and they were selling in the temple. Who were they? Where were they? What were they doing? Well, they were likely set up in that larger court of the Gentiles. Remember kind of where we are and when we are. 
We are right around the feast of the Passover, and we are at the place where God said, you will come back to celebrate the Passover. And as you come to the place where the biggest crowd, the biggest crowds mean the biggest opportunity to make a living. And so you have people buying and selling where there would be the most people, just like you have people buying and selling where there are the most people today. And they're buying and selling not just various and sundry goods, although I'm sure that probably took place. Specifically, what we're told is that they're buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Because remember, you come back to the temple to offer your sacrifices. And right around now, they're preparing to celebrate the Passover, and the Passover called for some very specific things. When you came to celebrate the Passover, according to Exodus, you brought a particular offering. You brought a lamb. The lamb had to be one year old, and the lamb had to be perfect. It had to be unblemished. Well, why not just kind of bring your own lamb from home? If you've ever been on a long car trip, you know exactly why. Because when you get in the car at 9 a.m., when you get out of the car at 9 p.m., you don't look the same. You don't smell the same. Your clothes are not in the same shape, and if you have kids, you multiply that tenfold. Now imagine doing that through dusty roads for upwards of 100 or 200 miles if you're coming from a long distance away. And that unblemished lamb that left the fold probably isn't unblemished by the time you get there. And the temple authorities would have to inspect every offering. And if it was deemed not worthy, then you had to go buy something that was. And not only did you have to buy something that was, but you had to buy it with the right money. It's why there's not only people selling sacrificial offerings, you had money changers there. When we lived in Canada, uh, when we would come down to visit family, we would have to change out our brightly colored plastic Canadian money that could go through the washing machine for boring American dollars that were easily ruined. And every time we did that, every single time, there was a cost. Not just the transaction uh, exchange rate, but an actual fee for doing that, for taking money from one color to another, it cost us something. Now you have people streaming from all over coming back into Jerusalem that had to pay the temple tax with the right currency, that had to buy and sell these things on the temple grounds with the right currency, and there was a cost to that. And there was a profit being made. So you have these people being basically extorted for money as they exchange their money and then extorted for money as they buy the things that are necessary to live in obedience to what Yahweh called them to be and do through the sacrificial system. And you have this incredibly beautiful sacrifice that was supposed to represent a covering for their sin that is now a financial burden to the people that are coming to worship. And maybe now we begin to understand why Jesus is enraged at this. And I even think the offering of doves is a pointed one there. <laughs> Pigeons. The birds. Because you know God to offer birds? People that couldn't afford the other sacrifices. And so there's, a, there's kind of this pointed aspect to even the most endangered among them were being victimized by this. What was supposed to be drawing the nations was basically an ancient Near Eastern mini-mall. What was supposed to be a place of reverence and worship was now this noisy, bustling marketplace. What was supposed to be a place of offering and sacrifice and grace and mercy and covering was a profit opportunity. And it's been gutted of all of that. That's why Jesus responds the way that he does. It's not because he doesn't like the way animals smell. It's not because it's too loud. It's not because the crowds make him frustrated because what they were doing violated the purposes and the high calling that God had placed on his temple. But what we might miss is that everything that Jesus does here is not just a response to what's going on, that everything that Jesus does here actually points to who he is. Before we go any farther in Matthew and see what Jesus says, which ties us right back to the prophets, you ever wonder why this happens at all? You ever come through your Bible and say, why did Jesus do this at this time? He's got a week ahead of him that he knows is his last one. Why is it that the first thing that he does is go to the temple and cause a commotion? In fact, if we were to read Mark's gospel, it's even more pointed than that. Mark's gospel says triumphal entry happens, and then immediately after they go into Jerusalem, same day as the triumphal entry, it says that he goes to the temple complex 
that he looks around, and because it's already late, he goes back to Bethany. And then the next day, he turns around and goes straight back to the temple. In other words, he goes there when he does to do exactly what he did. He went in order to clear this out. Why? Well, because prophetically, when Messiah comes, the temple comes immediately into focus. Those two things are joined together. We read Malachi 3 back when we went through the ministry of John the Baptist. And Malachi 3, uh, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And we know that's talking about John the Baptist. And what he does is he prepares the hearts of the nation to receive their Messiah. But, But it goes on not just to talk about the messenger, but to talk about the one that the messenger is preparing the way for. He says, I'll send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. In other words, if you know your prophets, you know that when the messenger comes, the Messiah comes. And if you know your prophets, you know that when the Messiah comes, he goes to his temple as a place of priority and he is eminently concerned with proper worship being offered there. Jesus does not randomly choose a location in Jerusalem to go to. He goes exactly where the prophets say the Messiah will go when he comes into his city. What does Jesus himself say when he gets there? Look at what he says in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And he combines two prophetic allusions there. First part, My house shall be called a house of prayer. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. The book of Isaiah is written some 700 years before Jesus Christ is born. The book of Isaiah is written to a people who are deep in rebellion. It's a book that we know a lot about for some passages. We read uh, passages for Christmas. We read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, and it's a book that uh, in a lot of places we have some kind of blank places in our memory. But overall, it's a book that talks about sin seriously. It promises judgment that's coming. It promises restoration and it talks about this one who will come and restore not only Israel but the world. When you get to Isaiah 55, it's this beautiful invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You don't have money, come buy and eat. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And then Isaiah 56, where I ask you to turn, starts talking about others, foreigners, outsiders. Isaiah 56 says this, Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. God says, don't think that just because you're an outsider, you have no place with me. God's plan and purpose and redemption has always been for all peoples who will draw near to him the way that he says. So he says, if you're obedient, if you keep my covenant, if you approach me the way that I have called you to, whether a eunuch, someone who is absolutely thought of as excluded from worship, whether you're an outsider, a foreigner, a Gentile, God says, you will still have a place with me. Verse 6, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, who love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast to my covenant, these ones I will bring to my holy mountain. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That's at the temple. And at the end of verse 7, he says, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. Do you understand that the way that they were using the temple as Jesus comes in prevents that from happening? What they were doing to the temple 
means that it cannot be called the house of prayer for all nations because it had been a house of commerce and distraction and disruption. And the second half of what Jesus said doesn't come from Isaiah, it comes from Jeremiah. So flip over a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah writes after Isaiah. Jeremiah writes to the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. The northern part had been wiped out by Assyria. Now you're dealing with Judah in the south. And Jeremiah says, you've seen what happens in God's judgment. And it's coming to you for the same sins, for the same stiff-necked, stubborn rebellion. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet turns his attention to worship at the temple. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there his word. Say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they didn't accidentally like hit the repeat key there. It was They were saying over and over, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. What the people were doing is they were using the temple as some sort of a magic box that protected them from everything else. They said, as long as we have the temple, God won't touch us. As long as we have the temple, God would never allow us to be wiped out. As long as we have the temple then God will keep our foreign enemies away because God would never allow his house to be overrun by outsiders. But here's the problem. Verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after the other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? See, the people were thinking, as long as we do the things, we'll be fine. Do the things, bring the offerings, bring the sacrifices, and God can't and won't touch us. See, it's a heart problem. You can turn back to Matthew 21 because that's what Jesus is dealing with. It's the heart problem. All the buying and all the selling in the temple pointed to a heart problem. It robbed the temple of being a place where God's glory was on display. It robbed the temple of its ability to be a place for reflection and repentance and prayer and restoration. It robbed the temple from the ability to have God be seen as holy and His people to approach Him in humility. Now the temple was a profit center. But more than that, it was the heart attitude that said, well, as long as we do the things, we're okay. Because you could bring the sacrifices, but it turns out you could also make a little money while you did that. You could offer the sacrifices, but you could still lust in your heart. You could offer the sacrifices, but you could take advantage of the poor. You could offer the sacrifices, but you could lie and swindle and cheat your neighbor. But hey, as long as you're doing the things, what's God going to say? And Jesus shows them that that is absolutely rejected worship. He goes in and he drives out those that were really desecrating what the temple was supposed to be. That's a lot of Old Testament to get through, but it's important because we have this gap between our experience and our understanding and why it matters to what this narrative in front of us is saying. Uh, lots of times we come to this passage and we use it to say, well, I mean, look, even Jesus got angry, right? So as long as I get angry in the way that Jesus did, this has nothing to do with our little temper tantrums and how we handle our anger. This has everything to do with the Son of God coming into his house and purging it of the evil that had taken residence there. His anger was directed at people who said that you could worship a God who called you to be like this, but have your life actually look like this. 
And that moves toward the rest of what happens in Matthew's gospel here because that picture of rejection now gives way to this picture of restoration. As Jesus drives out what is corrupt, he brings in a picture of what restored and renewed worship is going to look like. And once again, the place where we're at comes into focus. Look at what he says in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. There's a danger that we read over that and we say, yes, okay, he's doing what he has always done. He's doing what he does again. We've seen Jesus heal the blind. We've seen him heal the lame. We've seen him heal lepers. We've seen him calm the storms. We know by this point that Jesus is powerful, uh, so Jesus is just being powerful again, but it's so much more than that. Again, this whole section is a demonstration of who he is. If he is the Messiah, then we would expect that he would come quickly into his temple. And what do those blind beggars on the road from Jericho cry out? Have mercy on us who? Son of David. What do the crowds cry out as he's coming into Jerusalem? Hosanna to the Son of David. What do the children cry out in verse 15? Spoiler alert, we'll get there in a moment. Hosanna to the Son of David. This is not just someone from David's family when they say that. They are saying, this is the Messiah. This is the promised king. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that the prophets promised and foretold. Where will the Messiah go? Well, we saw that the Messiah will go into his temple, but what is the Messiah going to do? What is it the Messiah does? If you remember back when we were going through the various miracles of Jesus back in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we went back and we looked at Isaiah chapter 35. Because Isaiah 35 says that when Messiah comes, when this anticipated one comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's no accident that Matthew says the blind and the lame are coming to him. Jesus has gone exactly to the place where the prophet said he would, and in that place he is doing exactly what the prophet said the Messiah would do. These things ought to shine like spotlights on who Jesus is. They're not just to make people feel better. They're not just to get the crowds on his side. He's doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. And there's been a change here. There has been a driving out. There has been an exodus from the temple. Those that were buying and selling are gone. Those that were changing money are gone. Mark's gospel says he wouldn't even let anyone carry anything through the temple. It was no longer a shortcut across the city. That is gone. What is happening now is that those who were doing what was improper in the temple have fled out. And who has come in to take their place? the blind, it's the lame, it's the weak, it's the outcast, it's the other, and even that means something to us if we know our Old Testament. Because if you go back to the book of Leviticus, uh, it talks about how the Levites are the ones that bring the sacrifices and the offerings, and we know that. It's only the sons of Aaron, only the people of the right tribe, only the right priests can bring the sacrifices and the offerings, but as it turns out, not even every priest was fit to bring the offerings. In Leviticus 21.8, it says that the blind and the lame could not serve as priests to bring their offerings. In other words, the blind and the lame could not approach God. You say, well, that sounds unfair. It wasn't that he cut them off from being his people. It wasn't that he cut off covenant blessings from them. He simply said, you are not fit to bring the offering into my presence. You couldn't bring a lame lamb, lame lamb to God, and a lame Levite couldn't bring a lame lamb to God. Lame Levite couldn't bring any lamb to God. Why? Because there's no blemish, no defect allowed in his presence. And what happens here? Who has Matthew told us that Jesus is? He is Emmanuel, God with us. And who is invited into the very presence of God with us in the house of God? Those that the law would have explicitly forbid from doing that. Do you understand what Messiah is doing here in his temple? He is giving a picture of restored worship where he cleanses those who come to him. He makes them worthy, not because they're good enough, not because they're pure enough, not because they're righteous enough on their own, but because the one that the Son touches, the one that the Son invites, is made pure by him. 
He is restoring what the place of the temple ought to be like. He is restoring what fellowship with God ought to look like, what it was always pictured to look like, what it's always anticipated. And not only is the place still significant, but now we see that there's praise that is happening there that is incredibly significant. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and there is no other way to describe what is happening here. These are wonderful things that Jesus is doing. And when they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Apparently the children who were around had taken up this cry, Hosanna to the son of David. And they cannot abide by that because those words mean something. They're not just high five Jesus, good job. To say Hosanna to the son of David is to cry out for salvation to the one that the prophets have promised. To cry out to the Messiah. Where do you think the little kids heard that? Well, the whole city had been shouting it the day before. And now they hear it and they pick this up. And what are they expecting Jesus to do? They say, do you hear what these ones are saying? They'd expect him to say, oh, yeah, guys, totally unacceptable. Appreciate it, but not appropriate. But he doesn't. Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus says, yes. That's inflammatory. Because if he could claim ignorance, then he might be okay, but he heard it. And not only did he hear what they were saying, he accepted what they were saying as true. Do you know what Jesus has said up to this point, almost exclusively through Matthew's Gospel? Don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell me what happened. Don't tell them about the Christ, the Son of David. And now what happens? Let the children cry it out. The time for avoiding the conflict is gone. The cross is on the horizon. And now everyone needs to understand that this is the Son of David. Respond appropriately. He actually pushes it further. Not only does he hear, not only does he accept, he says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? He says, not only do I hear and understand their praise, but it's biblical, it's right, it's prophesied that they would do this. And he's reaching back to Psalm 8, verse 2. And if you were to read Psalm 8, verse 1, the psalm starts this way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouths of infants and babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Jesus says, not only do I hear what they're saying, but it is appropriate to ascribe the same praise to me that you do to Yahweh himself. You need to understand there is no middle road with Jesus. Either he is worthy of all praise or he is a blasphemer and worthy of none of it. And he makes it abundantly clear this is a claim for who he is. The praise of these children is right because of who I am by my very nature. You Pharisees have a heart problem. They see the same thing that the children see. They saw the same crowds. They've seen the same healings, but they come to vastly different conclusions. The children did not go to seminary to earn a degree to come up with a song about the son of David. They saw what the adults were singing the day before. They see what Jesus is doing, and they make a simple childlike connection that this must be appropriate. And the Pharisees, with all the knowledge and all the understanding in the world, are indignant and outraged that the Messiah would claim to be exactly who he is. But again, because we're in Matthew 21, that doesn't surprise us, does it? Because what has Jesus said over and over? Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Matthew 18, 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And it's not that children are cute, and it's certainly not that children are innocent. It is that children are humble and absolutely dependent. That children understand that they bring nothing to the table as far as sustaining themselves. They are wholly dependent on the provision of others. And in this beautiful reversal, we see 
illustrated what Matthew has been telling us all the way through. That the ones who see the truth are not the wise, not the ones that we would expect, not the educated, not the elite, not those with access. It's those who God opens their eyes. Those who are educated, those who are self-righteous, those who are self-worthy, are left outside the temple, indignant and outraged with their questions. And the blind, the lame, the children, the outcast, the other, the unworthy, are invited into the very presence of Emmanuel, God, with us. And he restores all of them that come to him. And the passage ends by saying, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Remember, this is a town that is swollen with people. Tens of thousands from all over come to celebrate the feast. And so Jesus stays outside the city. And so this is going to be his pattern. He'll stay outside at night. He'll come back in and do ministry as we go through this various week. And Dr. Bailey's going to open up kind of a, a timeline and a structure, a framework for us to think through on that next week. But before we end today, I want to go back once more to what the prophets say. Because if we look at this picture, and we look at what, like, let's, let's take what we went through in Malachi there, then it doesn't really match up. Malachi says that he's going to come suddenly to his temple, and Jesus does that. He says he's going to refine and purify the worship, and, and he does that. But Malachi certainly leaves us hoping for something more lasting, doesn't it? And what do we know? By the end of the week, the temple is going to be back largely to the way that it was. The king's going to go to the cross, not to a throne. And there doesn't seem to be any lasting purity. So did we misread those prophecies? Were they more short-sighted? Were they smaller in scope maybe than we thought? I don't think so. Because every time Jesus fulfills prophecy, he does it literally. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, and he was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to be born to a virgin, and he was born to a virgin. The Messiah is going to open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf, and he does just those things. So how are we to understand the Messiah's relationship to his temple? Well, like much of what Jesus does, this leaves us anticipating what is yet to come. It's important to understand that as we talk about the coming of Messiah, the temple is still connected to those promises. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and will sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now you read that as a Jew, and that makes no sense. Because your kings were from Judah and your priests were from Levi and the two simply did not overlap and interconnect. So I'm sure there was every way to read this prophecy except how it would make sense until you come to Jesus Christ who is both priest and king. Because he's not a priest under the law. He's the priest of a better covenant, a priest who is able to sit on his throne and who prophetically sits on his throne in the midst of the temple. Ezekiel 43. Well, before you get to Ezekiel 43. In Ezekiel, he's writing to a people that are exiled, that are outcasts, that have been brought to Babylon. And in Ezekiel 8 through 10, he sees this vision of the temple. And in like the greatest tragedy the Jewish mind can imagine, the glory of God departs and abandons his temple. Bit by bit, piece by piece, stage by stage, the glory of God moves from the Holy of Holies out the gates to the Mount of Olives, and it departs. Heartbreaking for a people who were promised to live in the presence of God. But they're so steeped in their sin and rebellion, they don't even see it. And Ezekiel promises judgment and carrying away, and then he promises restoration. Rebuilding. And in Ezekiel 43, he talks about the glory of the Lord returning to dwell among his people. 
It says, And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The man was standing beside me. I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of my people Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings. And he promises to dwell in their midst forever. When the king comes, do you know where he rules from? He rules from the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple, but it appears to be temporary, but that's not the final word. As we move through this Passion Week of Christ, it comes to an end in rejection by the people and the nations, but that's not the final word. Because just as God has been faithful to do everything that he promised in the life and the work of the Messiah, so too will he be faithful to complete it in the end. The king is coming again. When he comes again, he restores. Not only does he restore physically, but much more significantly, he restores the right worship to the hearts of his people. All this wrapped around the one that we call the priest and king. Things that are foreign to our way of thinking because we're 2,000 years separated from that system. These people understand so much, and they miss so much. These people want a king. They desperately want someone with authority. They want someone with the authority to throw Rome off. They want someone with the authority to remove the burden that their religious leaders had placed on them. And the king comes, but he comes in humility, mounted on the back of a donkey. He didn't come to conquer Rome, and he hasn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. What they can't understand in these passages is something that you and I have this tremendous privilege that we don't often consider of looking back and seeing the completed work of Christ through the completed work of Scripture. We can see how this fits together. How he can be a priest on his throne. Because he's the priest of a better covenant. A covenant that doesn't depend on the blood of bulls and goats that covers over sin for a little while, but that we need to do over and over and over again. We're talking about a high priest who is a high priest that brings a better offering. His own blood, perfect blood, that cleanses, not just covers. Because he's the high priest of a better covenant, not a covenant written on stone tablets, not a law written out there, but a law written on changed and transformed hearts. So, three questions. Three things for us to consider. First of all, how do we approach God? That question matters. How do you approach the God who made you? You will either attempt to do that through a series of things that make you acceptable, or you will approach God the way that he has always commanded, and that is through his prescribed means, through a sacrifice that stands in your place. We don't come to a temple bringing lambs and bulls and goats and birds. We come through the Son who offered himself for us. How will you approach the God who made you? Second thing, and this is a sobering question, at least for me. What is it that makes your worship acceptable? You came into this building, or you turned on your TV, or opened your computer at some point, and you participated in the act of corporate worship or at least I hope you tried to. How do you know that anything you did today was acceptable to the God who you claim to approach? Is it because you came to the right service? 
early service way more acceptable than late service? Because you wore the right clothes? It's because you gave the right amount of your paycheck in the offering? Because you sang the right songs at the right time? You opened your Bible to the right chapter when we said that? What makes our worship acceptable has never been merely about what we do. It has always been about the heart that brings the offering. And that's sobering because I can do the right things and no one knows the heart behind it but me. Something to consider as we come together to worship the Lord. But the third thing that's very comforting in all of this is that there's a promise of restored worship. The worship that we share here together on any given Sunday is good. It's better than good. It's a wonderful thing to be around God's people. It's a wonderful thing to open the scriptures together, to talk with God's people about the things of God, to sing with God's people about the praises of God. But if this were all that there was, wouldn't we always be left wanting something different, something better? Something without barriers between you and I through whatever throws those up time, distance, relationship, barriers between me and God that I still feel are there because of my sin and my failure at times. There's a promise that we have that our worship is not only accepted through who Christ is, but that one day we'll be perfected in his presence. That's such a good thing. Because it means that even now when we gather together, like Hebrews 13, 15 says, that through Jesus we can continually offer up this sacrifice of praise. And it's not accepted because my voice is good enough, my paycheck's big enough, my understanding is wise enough. It's accepted because of who Jesus is and what he does. And it's this down payment, this guarantee that one day my praise will be perfected in his presence. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that. Let's pray. Lord, test and try our hearts as we draw near to you in worship. That's a hard thing. Because very often I bring something that is less than worthy of who you are. And Lord, we know that everything that we would do in your presence falls short. We know that there's nothing that we could do that's actually worthy of who you are, but you've made this remarkable promise that through Christ we can offer you acceptable worship, that through the power of the Spirit we can do things that please you. Oh Lord, we long for the time when we see you face to face, when you've purged us of all the sins and all the shortcomings, when you've made us worthy to stand in your presence, to fall on our knees in worship. Lord, worshiping you today is good. Make us long for the time when we do it perfectly. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.